to you. Indeed, I would have people treat me with gentleness, kindness, and humor. And I do try to do the same to everyone I meet. But that radical Jesus went and took it a step further. Jesus expanded. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Of course, Jesus took it further. I did mention he was a radical, right? And not just in his time, but in every human era there has been since, including this one. And I'm not saying that Jesus was wrong. Yet today I am suggesting that we start uh, maybe just a little bit closer to home with your neighbor. Maybe even the person sitting right next to you right now. Or the person who you regularly tangle with on the church committee that you serve on together. Or the one who sits behind you in choir. I have a story about that one. My neighbor behind me in choir who I had trouble loving, I will, I will own. So I'm suggesting that you start with your neighbor because that can be hard enough. A colleague of mine once noted a common theological thought experiment that many you use engage in with the first principle. It goes something like this. If we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person, does that mean fill in the blank of, of some truly awful person here? And there are plenty to pick from, right? Does that mean that so-and-so has inherent worth and dignity? Or in Jesus' words, do I have to love them too? The colleague lamented that too often it felt like the question was an intellectual dodge for truly living our first principle, making it theoretical somehow about a distant figure that also distances the principle from our daily lives and the daily encounters with strangers and friends who all of whom have greater proximity and emotional consequence in our lives. Start with your neighbor. That can be hard enough. And not only did Jesus say love your enemy, but there has been um, in recent years people who um, adding another metallic rule called the platinum rule, which is to treat others the way they want to be treated. Which means you have to take the time to figure out what that might be. Which means beyond going, going beyond reciprocity and leaning more into empathy. A good thing to take on and consider further. And yet for today, start with your neighbor because that can be hard enough. And it is perhaps the best place to start in our fractious times. Words all around us are so angry and mean. Some have named this time not just a viral pandemic, but a pandemic of incivility. 
So start with kindness to those nearest by, among family and friends, in church, and in the line in the grocery store, perhaps even those we get to share the road with. A little more on that later. Christian theologian C.S. Lewis once said, good and evil both increase at compound interest. Good and evil both increase. And that is why the little decisions you, you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. Even, yes, yes, even in our times, those things make a difference. Now, Unitarian Universalists have long been rooted in optimism. It was 19th century Unitarian minister Theodore Parker, Unitarian minister and firebrand and abolitionist Theodore Parker, who first wrote of a moral arc in the universe bending toward justice. A century later, Dr. King, who was much influenced by Parker, rephrased his thoughts, and I promise you, much more poetically. Parker was a great thinker, but not necessarily the pithiest writer. And, as, um, and in 1886, Unitarian minister James Freeman Clark summed up our theology as believing in the progress of mankind onward and upward forever. The 20th and now 21st centuries have tempered such optimism, especially in Clark's almost triumphalist sense of confidence. Yet that doesn't make the optimism all bad or make it wrong. And it's just that any progress we make as a culture ebbs and flows, eddies and squirrels, moves ahead and retreats. And yet, over time, I do think we have made some collective progress. And I do still remain cautiously optimistic. And now, in 2023, kindness seems to be trending. Yeah, I actually, I, I actually wrote that sentence and spoke it out loud. Kindness is trending. If progress is not a straight line onward and upward, neither are we swirling downward and backward into a cesspool of meanness and violence. Perhaps enough of us have had enough of incivility and kindness is actually making a comeback? Historian Heather Cox Richardson sees something shifting. She noted in the new year that the New York Times had written three stories about all the good things that happened in 2020. Was this finally a tur turning away from the drama? Maybe this is just me speaking, she said, but I am so bored with all the antics. It was such a wonderful thing last year to have government, to have a government that just did stuff what they were supposed to be doing. It was wonderful to be able to ignore them. I think one of the reasons Trump's star has fallen is because he's just boring. Could it be so? 
Cox is one of the voices that kept me, my head on straight all through the pandemic. And it just is so heartening to me that she is finding hope in the new Congress that has just been seated with younger and more diverse representation, particularly among the Democrats. She says they're really cool. And she's excited to watch the, quote, older generation handing the torch to a younger generation. What's interesting and fun, she goes on, is the rebuilding. Watching people say, hey, we've got a problem with childcare in this country. What does it look like to fix that? Or, hey, our bridges are falling down. What does it look like to fix that? And those creative pieces are so much more interesting. Cox is a clear, is a serious, clear-eyed historian who is turning her well-trained academic eye on the present. And she is starting to be, actually be optimistic. Woohoo. I know I'm ready for a cultural shift. To kindness? Why the heck not? And where to start? Perhaps it is still too much of a stretch to love those on the other side of the spectrum from you. So why not start with your neighbor? Love your neighbor. It could catch on. Social change activist Adrian Marie Brown says, love leads us to observe in a much deeper way than other, than any other emotion. If love were the central practice of a new generation of organizers and spiritual leaders, it would have a massive impact. If the goal was to increase the love rather than winning or dominating a constant opponent, I think we could actually imagine liberation from constant oppression. We would suddenly be seeing everything we do Everyone we meet, not through the tactical eyes of war, but through the eyes of love. We would see that there's no such thing as a blank canvas, an empty land, or a new idea. But everywhere there is complex, ancient, fertile ground full of potential. We would understand that the strength of our movement is in the strength of our relationships, which could only be measured by their depth. Scaling up would mean going deeper, being more vulnerable and more empathetic. I actually think that Brown is pointing toward the platinum rule, so that is maybe where we're going, but we don't have to go all the way there today. And Adrian Marie's Brown, Adrian Marie Brown's words remind me of the proposed rewriting of our principles, putting love at the center to guide us in all we do. Perhaps we are already a leading edge of a shift toward love and kindness. Wouldn't that be grand? The trick is, I think, starting with your neighbor and then slowly expanding who your neighbor is, perhaps even the folks on the road. Tom Vanderbilt tells of a traffic exper- experiment from Europe in his book, 
traffic, why we drive the way we do, and what it says about us. There was a Dutch traffic engineer named Hans Mondermann who took a radical, counterintuitive approach to making roads safer in Holland. Rather than adding more speed bumps, bike lanes, pedestrian walkways, guardrails, etc., he removed them. It turns out that accidents actually dropped dramatically. For when the signs are gone, even in some cases the lines between the lanes, people have to slow down and pay attention to one another. Perhaps become more neighborly? Monderman insisted that what he was doing was not anarchy, writes Vanderbilt. Instead, he said, he was replacing the traffic world with the social world. I always say to people, I don't care if you wear a raincoat or a Volkswagen Golf. You're a human being, and I address you as a human being. And it seems that taking away traffic signs forces people to slow down and make eye contact to move at human speeds. Apparently, we lose the ability to make eye contact at speeds faster than 20 miles an hour. An English traffic engineer noted, the faster we drive, the less we see. As humans with an evolutionary history, we are presumably not meant to move faster than we can run, which tops out at around 20 miles per hour. Though I recently heard that Usain Bolt, the fastest human recorded, managed almost 28 miles per hour for 9.58 seconds. Removal of all those traffic signs was not universally popular in those Dutch towns. Even as traffic flowed, not only more safely, but more quickly overall. People complained that it felt unsafe, which delighted Monderman. I think that's wonderful, he said. I hope that some small accidents happen as part of the overall learning process of society. As we see more clearly both our vulnerability and our responsibility to each other. When we humanize traffic, our driving becomes far safer and flows more smoothly when we can look into each other's eyes because eye contact makes it harder to forget another's humanity. So start with your neighbor and let it flow from there. We pledge ourselves to creating new community, a new way of being together. We let love guide us. And so let us measure our accomplishments, our satisfaction, our goodness, our wholeness by relationship, not progress and profit. So start with your neighbor And keep going. Get a little wild, even. But start with your neighbor. Amen. And may it be so.